Good morning, guys. That's better. Uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, I wanted to bring your attention to a couple things. I've been meaning to uh, give out these books for a while, and they've just been sitting up here while I forget about them. Um, <clears throat> this first one is a, a great resource as we study through John. Many of you know and have bought uh, this commentary set in the past, the four-year series. We've done Judges for you, Galatians for you, First Samuel for you, Ephesians for you, First Peter for you, and now we have John for you. So is anyone interested in studying more through John uh, and would like this resource to read? Yes. I saw Miranda's hand first, okay. so I'll give it to Miranda. <laughs> that works. Uh, secondly, uh, I know there's, there are some gospel communities that are going through this, but this is a great book on kind of demystifying what God's will is, uh, and it speaks to how to know God's will and, and know what he's asking of us very clearly and bluntly. It's called Just Do Something. Uh, so if, has anyone struggled, what is God's will for my life? They're curious about that, and they have a question about that. Anyone, that this resource would be helpful? No one. So I guess we know God's will perfectly. Okay. Uh, would you mind passing that back to me back here? Also, uh, Will from up, up front has been uh, thanking people each week, and it's been convicting for me as I realize that gratitude and expressing thanks is something that I can grow in as well. Uh, so this Sunday, I want to take some time just to thank Will for his leadership and uh, being an elder, leading, leading us in worship through song. Uh, Will, we missed you last week, and thank you for using your many gifts, not only to sing, but uh, to humble me on drums. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we were blessed by you, Will, so thank you. Well, uh, if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to take a hold of it and open with me to the Gospel according to John. This morning we're going to look at the, the passage our friend Megan read, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got tons of Gospel transformation Bibles in this, uh, I think what's been called now the foyer, in this room off to my left. So please take one as, as our gift to you. Uh, we'd love to gift you with a copy of, of God's Word. This will be now the fourth week that we've been in the Gospel according to John. Uh, we'll open the study looking at the first 18 verses, what's called the prologue, introduce us to the main themes. We've also looked at the witness of John the Baptist, how he professed and claimed that Jesus was who he said he is. This is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week, we looked at Jesus calling those first disciples, Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, all followed Jesus. And this week, we get to read a story about a wedding and look at what Jesus does here. He does something pretty miraculous. He turns water into wine. And I think this has some cool implications for us as we study it. Uh, so the plan is to go through the five questions that you see in your handout, looking at what does the text say, what does it mean, what are some principles that are timeless that we can draw and seek to apply to our life? How do we naturally resist those? Because we want to be honest with ourselves and the sin that's in our hearts, and how uh, to our natural state we resist the things of God and his word. We want to look at Jesus and highlight and elevate his character. He's the hero. Uh, Jesus is the hero of the scriptures. He, we want him to be the hero of our sermons, the hero of our church, the hero of our songs. And then finally, from that, from the gospel, from looking at Jesus and what he has accomplished, how does that change and, and motivate us to, to act and, and be? In other words, how does the gospel change our hearts and our motivation that causes us to obey? You guys with me? All right, let's, let's transition now to our passage, John chapter 1, uh, excuse me, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, 
This is probably counting from when Jesus met Nathanael. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, we were told back in chapter 1, verse 43, that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And it's in Galilee that Jesus found Philip and Nathanael, uh, and, and, and others became his disciples. So Cana was a city in the region of Galilee. Galilee is a region west of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, north of Samaria. And instead of giving you a map on my hand and pointing to give you some context, uh, I've actually put some pictures up here. Wow, yeah. Will's introduced me to a whole new world of technology with slides. <laughs> so just to give you a rough context, hopefully you know what this is, right? This is the, a map. Yes, thank you, Christian. <laughs> this is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone knows what this is, right? Now, hopefully we zoom in more, and this will give you an idea of where in the Mediterranean Sea that is. You see here is Jerusalem. This is the region of Judea. There's Samaria, and here is Galilee. Here, this would be uh, the Sea of Galilee. Right here is the Jordan River. And actually, I've got another picture that zooms even more to show you where Jesus has been. This is pretty cool. This is where we believe Jesus journeyed from. So he was baptized by John in the Jordan River at Bethany. He comes up this way, marching along the Sea of Galilee, and comes to Cana, which is in the region of Galilee, uh, for a wedding. We move on from there, uh, but that's, that's next week's passage. And it's in Cana, this area of Galilee, that we, he's invited to a wedding. Now, hopefully this is helpful. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it would be helpful to provide some context about where things are. But if it's not, I cannot do it next time. So just let me know. story continues in verse 3. So Jesus' and his mom was invited, and his disciples were invited too, to this wedding in Cana, which is in Galilee. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And before you go thinking that this was a crazy drunken party, and everyone's getting drunk, and they've run out of wine, because that just means everyone got drunk. I don't really know the party scene. I'm not a wine drinker. But I imagine when the wine runs out, Unless you, I just imagine that's a lot of drinking that's going on. But unlike our weddings, weddings in Jesus' time, particularly in Jewish weddings, they were not small, short celebrations. A wedding in the Jewish, uh, as they celebrated in these times, could last up to a week. Now, if you're one like me who thinks a lot of weddings that I go to are too long, I mean, you go to the ceremony and then the receptions afterward and you have to wait to eat because the bride and groom have to go take pictures after the ceremony. So then you're sitting there, and then there's never enough appetizers, and the guy with the hors d'oeuvre tray never comes to your table for some reason. And then by the time they finally, the bride and groom finally come, then you're introduced by table, and then you happen to be at the last table. So it's like three hours before you eat, right? Anyone like that with me? Yeah. Okay, but Jewish weddings, they could be like a week, a couple days. But it would have been particularly shameful in a, in a culture like this uh, that was more focused and valued honor and respect to run out of wine. That would have been kind of socially embarrassing. So uh, maybe this was a wedding of a family member or a friend. So Jesus' mother Mary may have been helping out behind the scenes, serving wine or drink. Uh, we're not told either. This is total speculation. Uh, Jesus being the firstborn son, his, his father, the earthly father, Mary's husband, Joseph, could have passed away at this time. So Jesus was the one who was kind of responsible as being the firstborn son. So this might have been why uh, Mary comes to Jesus. But either way, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus replies in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. Now, you hear that and you read that, you might think, man, Jesus, that's disrespectful, right? <laughs> this is not how I would talk to my mom. When my mom calls me, I don't go, hey, woman. I mean, it's just, it's just weird, right? But this was a, this was a culturally appropriate title, right? This, was a, this would have been a respectful way that Jesus talked to a woman. And in fact, uh, for example, later in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman at a well, and he says, woman, believe me. So I don't think Jesus is frustrated here. Or when he's on the cross and he's dying, and he looks at his mother Mary, and he sees uh, the one the disciple that he loves standing next to him, he says, woman, behold your son, and, and behold your mother. He's kind of, as the oldest son, he's, he's making sure that his mom is going to be taken care of, that he's protected, right? So this is not some sort of, I don't think, a disrespectful way of addressing her, but it is a way, he doesn't say mom, he does say woman. And it seems kind of to be a polite way to distance himself, and especially when he says, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Jesus seems to be rebuking his mom in this, in this question and in this way. It's almost as if he's distancing yourself from her because he says, my hour has not yet come. And in the hour he's referring to as the time of his death, whereby he will fully and finally accomplish what he was sent to do as being the Lamb of God. In a sense, his glory will be fully revealed. And while Simon and Philip and Andrew and Nathaniel have all recognized and believed that Jesus is the Christ, there seem to be so many uh, misconceptions and speculations about what this Messiah would do. He would just be a political figure or someone who would rescue them from the Romans. Jesus didn't want his identity to be revealed in this moment, fully in that sense, because it was only on the cross that they would understand what he meant by Messiah fully. Does that make sense? Uh, we don't know Mary's motives in telling Jesus that the wine had run out. Like I said earlier, this would have been very culturally shameful and embarrassing. But it seems from Jesus' response that he's telling his mom, uh, Mom, my father in heaven is the one who tells me what to do. My father in heaven is the one who I submit to his schedule and his timing, not my mom or any other human. In a sense, it's as if Jesus is putting his mom in her place and reminding her of who she is. And Jesus may have sensed some symbolism here in the Messianic age. Many Jews uh, and, and the prophets promised that in this Messianic age, wine would fro- flow freely, and, and we'll talk about that more later. Uh, but although Mary thinks that she might know who her son is, Jesus being revealed as a Messiah in his fullest sense won't come until the cross, therefore his hour had not yet come. And I think with this understanding, it makes sense why Mary responds in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. So she's kind of, she's realizing what Jesus is doing in this moment, and she says, okay, Jesus, you're the boss, right? You have authority. He tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. She understands and that Jesus wants to help, but ultimately she's recognizing that Jesus has the final authority. In other words, Mary accepts Jesus' reminder and clarification of their relationship. And in verse 6, it says, now there were six stone jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
So no one knows that Jesus has done this, only the servants who saw Jesus and, and did what he asked. All the master of the feast knows is now there's better wine. Something happened, and now there's better wine. And this is not normal. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good until now. Typically, the, the master, who, uh, what the ESV says here, the master of ceremonies or the banquet, uh, the Christian Standard Bible translate that word, uh, the head waiter, master, the master of the banquet. He was the one who was in charge of catering this celebration. He'd be the one who was in charge of serving the food, and he was the one who was in charge of the servants. And he knows, because he's probably hosted weddings or done weddings, that you serve the good wine first. Because after people drink wine for a while, the, the taste buds become dulled. So you can get away with serving less expensive wine, cheaper wine. Because if the celebration lasts for days, as we said, if, if, a, if a wedding was a week, you can imagine drinking wine so much. I mean, I, personally, I don't know this experience, but I can imagine this would be a common practice. Just, I don't know what I was thinking there, but it just escaped me. <clears throat> Yet imagine the, this master, this head waiter, gets some wine for his sermons, and again, I don't know much about wine, but maybe he's swirling it, drinking it. What is this? Right? Are you serious? No one does this. this. This stuff is better than the first wine. If you can imagine the shock, and maybe the celebration got even better at this point, because now they have the good wine. You have saved the good wine until now. And our storyteller, the author of John, says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this event running out of wine at a wedding, filling up ceremonial water jars that were used for cleansing with water to the brim. It's an important detail. They miraculously become wine, new wine, better wine, good wine. And this is what John says is the first of Jesus' signs. We'll come back to the significance of this when we consider what does the text mean. And after this, verse 12, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers. That word, uh, you can see, my, my Bible has a footnote. It says that it can mean brothers and sisters and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. So how do we make sense of this passage? Jesus turning water into wine. Thankfully, we get to look at that now, don't we? I think there's two principles that we see in this passage uh, that, that, that we can highlight and I think we can apply to our life. Number one, Jesus is supreme. He has final authority and sovereignty over the as creator over created things. He has authority and power over people and the created order. First way we see this principle is in his interaction with Mary. Right, we saw this. In Jesus' clarification with his relationship with his mom, we see that Jesus is not forced, he's not bossed, he doesn't have to submit to any other human. Jesus clarifies with Mary that God, he is God, he is the one who ultimately no one tells him what to do. No one other than God has final authority over him. Now, when you think about authority, I, I've, I've been taught about authority as, as using an illustration like this. Imagine I, I decide to walk up to Pacific Highway, and there's a Mack truck barreling down. And I stand up on the sidewalk, and I put my hand up. Like, stop. Now, the driver just drives on by, right? Because I have no authority. I'm just some guy holding my hand up. But let's just say I had some different training. I had a car with flashing lights. I had a uniform and I had a badge. And I held up my arm and said, stop. Now I have the authority to stop this Mack truck, even though it's far more powerful than me, right? 
I have the authority over this Mack truck. Now, the cool thing about Jesus is he not only has all authority, but he has all power, right? So he's not only the cop holding up his hand with the badge, he could just pick up the Mack truck and like throw it to Mars, you know? <laughs> Jesus has all authority and power. And we see that in his relationship with his mom. And we, we also, when, when she responds, do whatever he tells you. And I think just as Mary was encouraging it and speaking to the servants of the wedding, like, hey, do whatever this guy tells you. Mary is encouraging us as the readers to do the same. Disciples of Jesus are not those who base their life on their own plans, their own authority. Self is not ultimate and final in their life. It, Jesus is. Disciples are those who, who agree. Do whatever he tells you. I want to do whatever Jesus says. My identity, my mission, my purpose, my values, my aim is, is based upon Jesus. Faithful disciples live in submission and service, ultimately and primarily to Jesus. Now, when I say that, I don't mean some sort of subjective mystical experience. Like, Jesus told me to do this, or Jesus told me to do that, and it's, it's based on, again, a vision, a dream, a billboard, you know? Heard this one time uh, with some youth students. Um, my girlfriend and I, re we really love each other. Or, I, I really love Jesus, but he's told me that, uh, you know, the Bible's commands on sexuality, they don't apply to me. Jesus told me I can do what I want. That's just bogus, isn't it? When I say do whatever he wants, what I'm meaning is what Jesus tells us in his word, right? The written word, the revealed word of God, that whatever Jesus tells us in his word, we're going to do. And that's the posture of a disciple. So if Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, we want to do that. We want to think about it and be creative in our life. How can I love God? How can I introduce things in my life that will help me love God? And how can I help other people love God? And how can I love others as, as God had loved me? Disciples have the posture, Jesus is my master, he's my king, he's my Lord. What he says, I want to do. This doesn't mean perfection, it doesn't mean that uh, we're always going to do this perfectly because I, I know the, the sinfulness and self-centeredness of my own heart, and I think I only know a fraction of that, if I'm going to be honest. But it means this is my goal or my aim, meaning this is, this is how I, a litmus test that I use. I want to obey Jesus so that I, I discern in my heart. I read a command or I read the Bible, I don't want to do this. That becomes a gauge of, Father, you are my master and my Lord. Help me, help me want to obey you. Help me want to live as you have called me to live. So that's, I think, the first principle we see. Jesus has final authority over his people. Disciples are those who have the attitude and posture of whatever Jesus says, I'm going to do. We see that Jesus has supreme power and authority not only over people, but over the created order. Now, I don't know if you tried this, but changing the physical matter of things is difficult. I've never seen or been able to change water into Gatorade as much as I like, would like to as a kid. You never got Gatorade. I always wanted Gatorade. Just had to drink water. Jesus changes the chemical makeup of matter. He turns its water into wine. And the author says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus reveals his glory. Now, I think you, we might think about the sign in this way, right? You're driving down the road and, and you see a, a square or a diamond or an octagon and it tells you something. 
tells you something to do or tells you what's, what's coming up ahead. It's a message that it presents to you. So when John says this is a sign, it's used in the sense of a miracle, a divine act, where there's a supernatural message. There's something emphasized in this. And, and, and John is saying that they see this sign, and they, it's Jesus manifesting his glory to them. The Greek word doxa, meaning glory, splendor, weight, importance, majesty. I think Jesus doing this in the sense, revealing his glory, what he's doing is he's showing that he is the sovereign creator. He can do whatever he wants. He can change matter, water into wine. Will, as he introduced the gospel, according to John, taught us that the first 18 verses of the gospel introduced the main themes that we see throughout the book. And in there, we, we saw the idea, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the one, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So when, when John says, we've seen his glory, this is part of the glory that John's talking about. Jesus turned water into wine. That's awesome. That's amazing. All things were created through him. He's the, the sovereign creator. He can do whatever he wants. And it seems that as the author John writes his account and we read it, he wants us to recognize the same glory that they did. That Jesus is the all-sovereign creator. And as his disciples uh, see this glory, notice what it says. Verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. This is another demonstration and connection to the purpose of this gospel account to help us believe in Jesus. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, we see both in his interaction with Mary and the miracle of turning water into wine that Jesus is the all-sovereign creator. He has supreme authority and power. But the second principle that I want to highlight is, is what we just looked at, that Jesus' disciples are those who see the glory in Jesus and they believe in him. Now notice, uh, Philip and Peter and Nathaniel and Andrew had already been following Jesus at this point. They'd already confessed that he was the Christ, Right? They'd already say, this is the one that Moses wrote about and all the prophets. This is the, the, the Christ, the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. This is their confession. But John says they saw his glory and they believed in him. And I think what this points to is that becoming a Christian not only happens by seeing glory in Jesus and believing in him, but growth as a Christian happens as we continually see glory in Jesus and move deeper into belief in him. Does that make sense? This is what God has done in your life if you are a Christian. He has shown the light of the glory of God, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into your heart so that you believed. And the, the scriptures also talk about that by beholding his glory. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Spirit, the Spirit's job. Jesus sent the Spirit to glorify Jesus. So we become a Christian by seeing the glory of Jesus and believing in him. And we continue to grow as we see more of his glory and believe in him more deeply. So the question we ask ourselves is if we are a growing Christian is, are you finding Jesus more and more satisfying or beautiful or glorious or weighty or awesome than when you first believed? Do you have a greater understanding and love for Jesus now than when you first became a Christian? This is what it means, I think, to be a Christian. You have seen glory in Jesus. You believe in him. 
and you continue to grow in seeing his glory and believing in him more deeply. Becoming a Christian is not simply about affirming facts. It is a work of the Spirit where we're given supernatural, a supernatural act of God's grace where we can now see something in Jesus that we never saw before. Once he bored us, and we would rather do anything else, and then the Spirit did something in our hearts, and now we've seen glory, and we believe in him. And now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'd believe in Jesus if I saw him turn water into wine. I mean, right? That's incredible. Ever seen anyone do that? If I saw someone do that with my own eyes, maybe I'd have an easier time believing. Well, maybe we'd be looking at YouTube videos, trying to discern, what was Jesus' trick here? Maybe he did some sort of sleight of hand. Like he had jars of wine, and he had jars of water, and then really quickly the camera just flashed, and now it's wine. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but there's a story in John 11 where Jesus raises a man from the dead, a guy named Lazarus. And John records this line, many of the Jews believed in him. Not all. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, water into wine is cool, but raising someone from the dead? And many believed. Now, why is that? I say, well, I mean, if I was there, I'd believe. Probably not. Do you have that attitude and mentality? Because in our natural self, we resist this because if Jesus is who he said he is, we've got to do something about it. We can't be as selfish and as self-centered as we used to be or want to be. Someone else has authority and claim over our life. We can't be totally unbiased about this. Our hearts are so twisted and so self-centered and so self-absorbed, we prefer ourselves to the glory of God, to the beauty of Jesus. We resist Jesus redefining us, redefining relationships, having ultimate authority. We're blind to his superiority and his supremacy. We maybe don't believe that he can provide life when we don't taste and see his goodness. We don't see glory in Jesus, therefore we don't believe in him. When we were talking with one particular guy, we were having lunch together. He, he wasn't a believer, but he was expressing interest in, in following Jesus. And he was really, uh, he really loved lust, and he was ensnared with pornography and satisfying his, his de- natural desires. And I looked at him and I said, uh, I believe that Jesus is more satisfying than sex and pornography. And the look on his face was one of, Idiot. <laughs> right? Jesus is more satisfying, yet we don't believe that. Naturally, we don't. We can't fathom. We don't see the common glory and grace that he has bestowed on, on everything. We don't give thanks to him or honor him for every good thing that we have in our life. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good. He has mercy on all that he has made. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Paul, speaking at Lystra, gives a sermon where he says, In past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. 
We don't naturally honor God nor give thanks to him. We don't naturally see evidences of his grace towards us. We don't see glory in him. And we don't therefore see the greatest act of glory or grace in sending Jesus to be our savior, to die on the cross. And this leads us to consider how Jesus is the hero of this story. And I don't think primarily that this miracle is for us to go cool. Jesus turned water into wine. I wish he could do that at my house. Maybe due to past experiences or abuse of family or friends or in your own life, the fact that Jesus turns water into wine might make you uncomfortable. So what do we do with the story? I believe that this story has some deep symbolism about pointing to what Jesus ultimately came to do. And it comes with this reality of Jesus turning water into wine. That's significant. For the Jews, based on their psalms and promises from their prophets, wine symbolized God's blessing and provision. This is never drunkenness. The Jews understood from the Hebrew scriptures that it was not godly nor wise to get drunk. Proverbs 23, 20 says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astride by it is not wise. This is not talking about drunkenness. We're talking about wine. And wine by itself was often viewed as a gift, something to be enjoyed appropriately. And wine is often talked about from the prophets in the Psalms as a gift of enjoyment and a sign of joy and God's goodness. I hadn't, I hadn't, I had no idea about this before studying the passage. So. I've got a lot of verses here to show you a survey of how the Bible talks about wine, and hopefully this will help provide a context and a greater appreciation of what Jesus is doing here. Psalm 104.5. Oh, excuse me, 104.15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's Heart. Proverbs 3.10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be full of plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Furthermore, the, promise, the prophets promise a time in which God will restore order, peace. He will bring about what's called a messianic age of God's goodness and blessing to all of his people. The prophet Isaiah, he records a promise and a song of praise of God for his goodness and promising a time where there will be no more justice or injustice, no more violence. He says in Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food of marrow, of well-aged wine, well-refined. The prophet Jeremiah promises that one day God will turn his people's mourning into joy and that they shall come and sing aloud. They will be radiant over the goodness of the Lord with grain and oil and wine. Joel 2.19 says, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and will make you satisfied. I will, make, I will no more make you reproach among the nations. This is Joel's way of promising what's to come, this messianic age. Joel 2.24, the, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. 
Joel 3.18, and in that day, the day of restoration of the Lord, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The the prophet Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. Zechariah 9.16 says, on that day, the God, their God, the Lord, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the Jews of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And that's just a, a brief survey of what this, the Bible talks about with wine. And I thought that was fascinating. hope that was the same for you and it wasn't just me blubbering on about a bunch of verses. But I think with, with this background and this, this understanding, this brief survey, we see the significance that wine has in this story and what, what John is, was pointing to, what, Je- what this miracle, I think, points to. John is saying, I think, that Jesus is the one who would bring about this messianic age. Jesus is the one who brings about the good wine that is saved until now. It's not just physical. It's talking about a new age of renewal and blessing and joy while the mountains will drip with good, sweet wine. And it's against this backdrop and understanding that we have Jesus telling his servants, fill the water to the brim. The abundant fruitfulness of vines and flowing wine is a characteristic of the new creation, the age of the Messiah. And this Jesus is the Messiah who is ushering this new age in. Now, it's, it's not, this, this story is not showing us that by believing in Jesus, you will somehow get supernatural wine and you can pray over water and it becomes wine. You don't believe in Jesus to get divine wine. But this story signifies that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, who brings about a new age of peace and prosperity, a new age of God's blessing and abundant life. He meets people's needs abundantly. Jesus later says in John 10.10, I have come that, that people may have life abundantly, life to the full, flourishing life, have it in abundance. And the beautiful thing about this story is I think there's a lot of symbolism of the wine, but there's more symbolism here than just the good wine. The fact that they had run out of wine at the party points to the spiritual lack or the barrenness of the Jews in the first century. And Jesus has come bringing new wine. The symbolism of the water jars, they were used for ceremonial washing. In other words, these these stone jars, these six jars in the Jewish belief and customs where you had to wash yourself, you had to become ceremonial clean. And if you didn't, you were considered impure. You had to continually wash yourself to be pure. And these jars may represent the the whole system of the Jewish tradition and custom and law. And it might even be significant that there's six jars. Six is a number that's one shy of seven, which would be a number for perfection or completion. In other words, six would be viewed as incomplete and Jesus changing the water into wine comes to complete the, the system, provide a new age of Grace and faith in Jesus. Jesus bringing new wine points to the fact that everything about this Jesus that he will do will be better, will be superior. Jesus is going to replace the old ritual and religious system with something new and better. He's going to transform what used to be into something greater. Jesus is being in greater grace and was made known through Moses. This points us back to a line that we see in the prologue, verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I like how Will brought up the NIV translation, as it can be thought of, out of his fullness, 
we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. Friends, I think this is a story pointing to the reality that Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament system. He's filled it to the top, and he transforms it. He blesses it by the power of his righteousness and his perfection so that no longer do individuals have to continually wash themselves to be clean. No longer is there a whole system of sacrifice and, and going to the temple to be made right with God. You believe in Jesus. He is the full and final sacrifice. He is the ultimate lamb who has come to take away your sins fully and finally. There's no more need for washing and going through this good enough or, or cleansing yourself from a state of, of sin. Jesus has taken away the stain of sin forever. You come to him, you put your faith in Jesus, you believe in him, you're clean. It's once and for all. And Jesus provides us with this abundant life by giving up his. He clothes us with righteousness and takes upon our shame. He gets rejected, we get accepted. He emptied himself so that you could be filled up. And I think, friends, it's from this reality, this accomplishment, that we get to experience the joy and the peace of being forgiven. And it's from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that our hope and trust is anchored in the providence of God. The more we come to Jesus in the gospel, the more we gaze upon his glory revealed in the gospel, our selfish hearts and our hardened hearts are melted. Friends, when you see that Jesus had all authority, as John says, he who made all things, not anything was made apart from him. When you see that he turned water into wine, later he, he gives sight to the blind, he raises the dead, he heals the sick. He made the soldiers that crucified him. He spoke the tree into existence that was turned into wood that became a cross. He could have said a word, annihilated. The wood, the nails, the soldiers, everything. He spoke everything into existence. He could have said a word, right? He has all authority and power, yet he stayed. He stayed. <laughs> He was crucified to a cross, and as he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And friends, if you take yourself to the foot of the cross and you see and hear, as the lyrics of the song we sing read, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. When you see that this Jesus was crucified and that, that it should have been you on the cross, it should have been you who died. It should have been you who was punished. Jesus' death takes greater significance when you believe that Jesus didn't just die for this general sense, this conceptual, theoretical thing. He died for you. took your place. It's personal. You know, there's, no, there's nothing like Jesus. There's no wine better than Jesus' wine, right? No one has served me like Jesus. No one has loved me like Jesus. No one has forgiven me and continually forgives me like Jesus. No one satisfies me like Jesus. And this changes our hearts to say, yes, Jesus, Whatever you say, I want to do. 
Man, you've proven your faithfulness again and again. You prove that, that you are good, that you're for me, that, that you are working all things for your good and, and your glory and my benefit. Yes, I want to do whatever you say. Yeah, we have moments where we disbelieve that and we get back to we're so selfish and self-absorbed. But the more we come to the cross and we see Jesus died for you in your place, this melts our hearts of hardness and self-centeredness and changes us. I haven't found anything else that does it like that. I think you can tell us your, your functional understanding and experience of the gospel and how you view God when you sin. Test yourself. When you look at something you're not supposed to, you have a lustful thought, a moment of envy, greed, gluttony, laziness, you snap at someone, you say something harsh, and you go to confess what are your thoughts about God? How do you view him? Maybe you view him like your earthly dad. If you have or you had one, and the thought of disappointment in his eyes would be too much that you'd rather just hide it. You'd rather just not say anything. It was so painful. Maybe your dad was absent or neglectful. Do you picture God as your father who is only happy when you do well, but is disappointed and distant and ashamed of you when you sin? Or do you picture and think of God as a loving Father who wants you to confess your sin, not to shame you or condemn you, but for you to experience the beauty of his forgiveness? For you to experience the reality of your forgiveness and experience his lavish grace and loving kindness towards you more deeply. Friends, I think the more you experience his grace and see his lavish provision in your life, you'll say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to do whatever he wants. The more you experience his glory and experience his grace, you realize and believe more deeply, you'll want to see Jesus' lordship exercised over everything in your life. So may God give us grace to manifest the glory of Jesus to us more clearly. Amen? May his glory be revealed to us as we study his word, as we sing songs about him, as we hear sermons preached to us, as we have friends that encourage us in the gospel and, and challenge us in our sin and call us to holiness and to life. And may we increasingly believe in Jesus, not only as Savior, but as Master, as Lord. May we be a church who say, whatever Jesus says, I want to do. I want to give myself to his word and obeying what it says. Because there's nothing like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I confess that there is nothing good or worthy or deserving in me that you should call me as your own. Father, in sin I lived unaware. As child of wrath I lived. Hell should be my prize. This is the path that I walked on. Yet in your grace and your mercy, you, you called me out of darkness. You transferred me into the kingdom of your light. You've shown the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ into my heart. You cause me to believe. 
Father, I would not naturally believe that, that there was a man named Jesus who was born from a virgin, who claimed to be God, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, and claimed that if you believe in him, that you too could have eternal life. That's ludicrous. Father, thank you for being so gracious and kind to me and to my brothers and sisters in this room that you have caused us to be adopted and born again into your family. Father, remind us that that it is only by your grace that we are saved, that we're not better or superior to anyone else. Father, remind us of your great goodness and your provision in our life, that you came that we might have abundant life, that you were a God who was invited to parties, that you turned water into wine. Father, forgive us for being grumpy and cold. Help us to be joyful and thankful in your salvation. Father, help us to have hearts of obedience that say, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my master. You're my king. What do you want me to do? How can I obey you? How can I, how can I love you? And how can I love others? Father, would you do this by your grace and, and by a work of your spirit to change our hearts from the inside out that we might love you and obey you? Father, we do love you. We confess how often we are so self-centered and self-absorbed and unbelieving, but thank you for giving us your word and particularly the gospel of John that reveals your glory to us that we might believe more deeply in you. Father, I love you. I thank you. Would you be glorified as we sing to you now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.